as a 22 year old who's really good at virtual stock trading games, I felt, yeah, it's a, it's a good decision. It's a great decision. So I didn't have any money, but whatever <laughs> money I didn't have, you know, I put into, into some discounted Lehman stock thinking, you know, these guys know what they're talking about. And if there's so much confidence and they have such fancy suits and they get paid so much, this thing's gotta, you know, gotta go up. And of course it didn't, it didn't go up, not at all. And it went down more than any investment bank stock of that size anywhere. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk, but to win big, you've got to reduce it. Today's episode is sponsored by the Women Building Wealth Membership Group, the complete proven step-by-step -step course to guide women from novice to confident investor. To learn more, go to womenbuildingwealth.net. My name is Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Investment Research, and I'm here with featured guest Lex Sokolin. Lex, are you ready to rock? Absolutely. Let's get to it. All right. So let me tell the audience a little bit about your background. Lex is a futurist and an entrepreneur focused on the next generation of financial services. And oh my, how we really need improvements in our financial services. So right now he's working for a company as the co-head of a company called Global Fintech. The company is called Consensus and he's Global Fintech co-head and it's a global blockchain technology company building the infrastructure applications and practices that enable a decentralized world. He was a co-founder of various internet startups such as Advisor Engine, Nest Egg Wealth, and Autonomous Next all focused on making financial services better, faster, and cheaper. Oh yeah. He holds a JD and an MBA from Columbia University and an undergraduate degree from Amherst College. Lex, take a minute and fill in any further tidbits about your life. Thank you so much for um, having me on the show and I'm excited to, to talk about all the mistakes I've made in my life, of which there are many. My background is a mix of this deep financial services experience. I've worked on Wall Street, as you'll hear. I've worked in fintech startups, which is technology for financial services. I spent time on artificial intelligence and blockchain and virtual reality. So all the, the cool, weird stuff at the edges. And then the other part of my life is visual arts and design. And I, I grew up doing painting and drawing and that translated into building brands and logos and website screens. And I guess the weirdest thing that I do today is use neural networks, which are little machine learning sort of AI machines to, to generate abstract visual arts. So it's, it's tough to combine these things, you know, finance and being on the edge in terms of where technology is, but there's actually a ton going on. And a lot of it was inspired by this this fundamental error from which I learned back in uh, 2008. Interesting. Okay. Well, I'm looking forward to that, to hearing about it. But I have a question before we go on, because we do have a lot of young people, you know, listening to the show and they're very interested in the fintech space and they'd probably like to have a career, something like yours. Normally when they hear someone in that space, they hear someone saying, I'm a coder and I spent all my life hacking and coding and that's how I got into this 
the edge and that's how I got into the fintech space and that's how I got into these startups. But it sounds like you didn't actually go in that direction. You went in your own direction. Maybe you could just give a little uh, synopsis of, as to how you got in and then maybe some advice for someone who says, I'm not, coding is not my core interest, but I want to be at the edge. Sure. I think there's a, a misunderstanding of what technology is at the core. You know, you kind of imagine a terminal with a black background and a blinking underscore, you know, in some sort of 80s movie about taking over a corporation. And that's a part of technology. That's a tool of how you build solutions. But end of the day, technology is just an expression of the, of the human animal. It's, it's the tools that we create in order to be more effective. So language, the invention of language is a technology, fire, the wheel, electricity, all of these are technologies. And they all start with a human interest and a human problem, right? So why is it that we want to automate the delivery of banking services? Or why is it that we want financial advice to live inside of a mobile app or inside of you know, WeChat or Facebook? What is motivating that to happen? And so if you're, if you're not as inclined towards backend and, and deep coding and maybe the more technical stuff, of which there are a number of paths into the industry, you know, focus a lot on the human side and not kind of just in a storytelling way, but in a, trying to, in a psychological way. Try to understand why people engage with financial products. What, what is it that the, that the financial instruments do to make human lives better or more self-actualized? And then when you think about institutions or businesses, you know, there's, they're also a collection of people. So how do those people make decisions and what, what financial products do they need? So I think you can, if you understand the demand side of the industry well, like why do people need this abstract thing, then the technology solutions and the, the balance sheet and the capital instruments, all of those are a corollary to the, you know, to the underlying demand for what it is that people want. Mm. And it kind of reminds me in this field of quality control, where I used to spend some time when I was younger, the Japanese had a saying, and I'm going to have to look it up to get it correct, but the saying was something like, go and see, you know, go investigate, with the idea being that, you know, you can truly only know something when you go and touch it, when you go and see it, when you, when you watch someone using financial services and you hear their frustrations. So what I'm hearing for you, from you, and I think a good lesson for the audience is that being on the edge, you know, doesn't have to be about coding, but it should really be about understanding the needs and the desires of the customers, the feelings, the emotions, and all of those things. And if you can capture those things, then you bring a lot of value to a company. Absolutely. That's, you know, it comes down to people, what they need and how they feel about what they need. And if you can unpack that and wrap a software experience around it, then, you know, it's going to be spectacular. Exciting. Exciting. Well, great, great. We went off topic a little bit, but I think it was very valuable. So now it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, tell us a bit about the circumstances leading up to it and then tell us your story. Sure. So the, the year was 2006, and I had just graduated from undergrad. I did my undergrad in economics. And if you scroll back a little bit in time, 
it was still cool to work in finance. I mean, today it's, it's, you know, it's, nobody wants to be an accountant or a banker or, I mean, they do maybe in their dark hearts, but they don't say it out loud. It's much cooler today to go to Facebook or Snapchat or maybe, you know, working at Tesla on self-driving cars. That's, that's what everyone's excited about. In 06, there was still this black hole into finance, especially out of American universities and, I joined Lehman when the you know the brand and the perception of it was was very strong and it was kind of seen the way Goldman and Morgan Stanley and UBS are are seen in the states today. So there was an analyst program of about 40 50 people and it was both kind of young kids out of school and it was also associates so that's that's if you've done an MBA uh, and you've been to business school you go in and you're kind of on the next track up so that group of people was the entering class and we were starting at the investment management division and you know that's the division that manufactures funds then distributes those funds to, to clients that has financial advisors working for it so you would think that in one of the most capitalist companies in the whole world with some of the wealthiest investors in the whole world you would have a good amount of investment acumen and so this this class of 50, one of the onboarding activities we had was a stock picking competition. And, you know, this is where I cut my teeth and I got my, my, my confidence, which was certainly a mistake. So the, the stock competition was, you know, we had three months and you, you just go out and try to generate the highest return. Super simple. So every morning I would come in, I would log in and kind of find stuff on Yahoo Finance. And after a while, it was just, I started to pull ahead and it was just me and this one other associate, you know, and he's been to, I was 22 and he's been to business school. He was a financial advisor. So it was just us locked step in step, trying to, trying to eke out a little bit more and more. So after this whole process, after three months, I came out ahead and I was the, you know, the winner of this fake investing competition. <laughs> I felt like, you know, on top of the world, I beat out Stanford and Harvard and all those guys. And, you know, I just felt really good about myself. So that put me on, on a pedestal with confidence right around 2007. You know, and so what did I think? I thought you got to pick something, you got to have conviction in it. So you buy a bunch of it. And then if it's, you know, if it's performing poorly, you sell it. If it's going well, you buy it, which is totally the, the opposite of probably what you should be doing in every way. And so around this time, 07, is when you started seeing Bear Stearns have uh, cracks in its armor and then collapse uh, shortly after. And there was started to be rumors that, you know, the, the big banks had a lot of bad debt on their balance sheets, which just means that, they, you know, they couldn't, meet their obligations and they had a liquidity crisis that was looming. Lehman, of course, was in the crosshairs. And spoiler alert, Lehman goes down, goes to zero, everyone's fired. But we'll, you know, we'll get there in a second. And so I'm in this investment management business and the Lehman price was around 120, I think, give or take, about 120 bucks. You know, and it starts to go down and it starts to go down and it starts to go down and it's 90 and it's 80 and it's 60 and it's 20. I remember the day when it's 20. And so now the thing you have to know about Lehman Brothers is that people said, you know, the corporate color was green. So people said, you know, everybody bleeds green at Lehman. 
because everyone's on the same team. So if you're a, if you're a managing director, you get paid in Lehman stock. 50% of your comp is Lehman stock. If you're an analyst like me, you can, first off, all your matching, your 401k retirement matching is in Lehman stock entirely, everything, right? So you save 10 grand, you get 10 grand of Lehman stock. No, nothing else. And then if you like, you can get more. You can get it at a discount, get 20% off Lehman stock. So of course, it's 20 bucks. It's been falling for months. There's the, the New York branch manager, a dude with suspenders and a, you know, a haircut from Gordon Gecko is walking around the, the trading floor saying, this is ridiculous. Well, you know, it's, this, things have never been this cheap. Like we all need to go and buy more Lehman stock, everybody. And th these are people that were managing at the time, 80 billion in that business and another 200 billion in an adjacent business. So, you know, as a 22 year old, who's really good at virtual stock trading games, I felt, yeah, it's a, it's a good decision. It's a great decision. So I got, I did not, you know, the good news is that I didn't have any money, but whatever <laughs> money I didn't have, you know, I put into, into some discounted Lehman stock thinking, you know, these guys know what they're talking about. And if there's so much confidence and they have such fancy suits and they get paid so much, this thing's got to, you know, it was 120 and now it's at 20, it's got to go up. And of course it didn't, it didn't go up. Not at all, in, not in any way whatsoever. It just went down. And it went down more than any investment bank stock of that size anywhere. You know, so Merrill Lynch also collapsed, but it went and it got taken over by Bank of America, so it didn't go to zero. Bear Stearns had collapsed earlier, but it was bought by JP Morgan and people were, you know, they got two bucks on their investment and I think they were moved up to 10 bucks on their investment later. Lehman was the example for the whole world of learning how to be punished and, and seeing the, the destruction of wrong balance sheet construction. And it's, it was a super interesting moment. I am so incredibly grateful for having that early in my career, you know, two years into my career, because I saw everything from the, the behavioral biases that people have about the places where they work. Mm -hmm. uh, the problems of over indexing into one particular security. And then more than anything, you know, like idiosyncratic risk that you really can't predict. And this, this is, this is sort of fundamental in the sense that Lehman was not a worse business than Merrill. It was not, it was a better business than Merrill and it was not a worse business than bear. It was a better business than bear Stearns. What however happened is that, when it was time to talk bailout, all the people in the room, from the treasury secretary to all the other banks, every single person in the room had been a Goldman Sachs employee. Every single one. Guy running a treasury, Goldman Sachs. Guy running Merrill Lynch at the time and Morgan or Morgan Stanley at the time had come from Goldman Sachs. Goldman Sachs runs Goldman Sachs and so on. Mm. The only person not in, the, in that pedigree was Dick Folt, who was the CEO of Lehman Brothers, who for about a decade had said, Lehman is the new Goldman Sachs and we're going to take him down. And so when it came down to teach someone a lesson, Dick didn't get a lot of rope. Mm. I mean, he was, he was a rough dude. He rubbed a lot of people wrong. And for a purely personal sort of political, interpersonal reason, I believe he did not get a lifeline. And that is why 
I mean, there are many reasons why, but that is a but-for reason why Lehman Brothers went to zero. So now, as a 22-year-old analyst who's really good at virtual stock games, you know, that, that is not part of my decision process. That is not something I know. And so understanding that the world is, is not, this is not an exception, that the world is defined by these edge cases, that the whole thing is just these edge cases, for me, you know, was a, was a majorly valuable takeaway. And so my 401k matching did go to zero, but, you know, long, long horizon, things turned out quite all right. Mm. And so if you were to summarize, what are the lessons that you've learned from that, that you probably still carry with you? In the short term, I think I overreacted, and, but I did learn the lesson that overconcentration in any position exposes you to a ton of black swan idiosyncratic risk, which you cannot model, nor can you have any good sense for. It is, it is an unknowable. And so portfolio construction is the logical conclusion. Build your portfolio without overexposing to any particular holding, diversify, or if you're doing sort of a, a barbell strategy, you know, have the other side of the barbell has to be really conservative. Mm-hmm. You know, so if you, if you do tank one position, it doesn't really impact your portfolio in a meaningful way. Got it. So I would say that's lesson number one. And then lesson number two is, People are not a reliable source of information. An emotional human being will give you their emotion, and that's all they've got. So understand that most of the time what you're receiving is emotion from other people, and they might cloak it in technical language, but it's not not useful information. It's just how they feel. Mm. They may cloak it in suspenders and a fancy haircut. There you go. And what's interesting about that, I mean, I, I have some things that I would take away, but what there's kind of a flip side of what you just said, because on the one hand, I totally get it, you know, that people just, they, they, they try to give good information, but emotions and circumstances and biases, you know, just make it very difficult. But the other side of it that you highlighted in your story that was also interesting is that your methodology that you had, however, you know, minimally tested, also couldn't take into consideration the kind of human aspect, like maybe you're looking at the numbers or the charts or the this and the that. So in some ways, there's two parts to this. One is it's, it's hard to rely on humans to give you great information. And sometimes it's hard to rely on machines or charts or data to give you correct information. Would, would I, what do you think about that? You know, I think it's, it comes down to understanding the mathematics of portfolio construction and diversification. I mean, you can, you can be on the side where you believe active management and alpha is possible, or you can be on the side where you think, you know, modern portfolio theory and passive investing is the only way forward. Either of those are totally fine investment philosophies to, and to hold in your head. But from both of those points of view, there are universal mathematical truths about portfolio construction that you need to apply, which is, you know, hold upwards of 15 positions, don't overlever into any one of the positions, model out what risk return profile this portfolio generates over what time horizon and how much you're paying for risk, you know, because you can, 
all of these things are on the market. So you can get a 5% return or a 10% return or a 50% return. All of them are available. They just come with very different prices in terms of risk. Mm. So the risk you will get out of a 50% expected return is super high. And then if you look at a 5% return, while some versions of that 5% return have really low volatility and then others have ridiculous volatility and it's where you can, the dumb mistake would be to say, I am going to overpay for my return in units of risk. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that, that is, that's an asset allocation question that is totally solvable through software or through hiring a financial advisor, depending on, again, what your investment philosophy starts as. Got it. Got it. Okay. And um, I actually wrote an academic paper called 10 stocks are enough in Asia. And what I highlighted is that, to get the diversification benefits of combining stocks, actually what Harry Markowitz, who was kind of the, the founder of, of finance, really, that when, when finance broke off from economics, you know, the, the, the lesson that he taught us was that risk disappears or reduces very quickly in the beginning as you start to blend stocks together. So I, I appreciate what you said about 15 plus. And I always say, if you're an individual, you probably should be looking at maybe 10 to 15 positions. And in my case, I'd say, okay, also you probably should have some kind of stop loss because <laughs> most people don't have time to keep on track of it. But anyways, that that's an interesting thing. And when I talk about diversification, I would say diversification is the seatbelt and blending in some sort of other instrument, such as a bond, as an example, is the airbag. And if you've got those two things in place that are mathematically proven, I mean, they can go wrong, but when they go wrong, it's usually for a short period of time. And really, we're investing and saving for a very long period of time. You've reduced your risk of harm significantly. And I always think of seatbelt and airbag because... I don't think there's many people out there that would say, yeah, I never wear a seatbelt and I, I got the airbags removed from my car. Those things are so dangerous. <laughs> my other takeaway is that you talked about one of the kind of mistakes is misplacing trust. And it's so, particularly when you're a young person, you see senior financial people that are managing billions of dollars and you think this guy's got to know. But as I always say, you know, everybody's ultimately making it up this guy just has a lot more experience making it up than others and maybe has some great experience in risk management or something like that. The other thing that resonated with me is that when I moved to Thailand, it was 1992. I entered the stock market in 1993 in September of 1993. And then the stock market in Thailand peaked in January of 1994. My first four months in the stock market, the stock market doubled. It was amazing and the emerging markets were going crazy. Luckily for me, I didn't have that much money (laughs) because that was the peak. The stock market in Thailand went from 1789, that was the index level in January of 1994, down to about 2011 as an index level in about 2001. So we're talking about a about a 90% fall in the market. And if you add in currency, if you were in a US dollar investor, you would have lost on the Thai bot currency over that time too. So you're talking about 95% fall in the market or in your investment value. And luckily for me, I didn't have a lot of money. And the second thing is that 
I was doing a startup in my coffee business with my best friend and that consumed whatever additional money I had. So I can relate to the idea of being grateful that I didn't have that much money in the beginning. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> All right. Let's take it forward. I, I appreciate that story. Now, based upon what you've learned from this and what you continue to learn, what one action, and I think I know what it's going to be, would you recommend our listeners take to avoid suffering the same fate? Well, for me, I, after that experience, the next thing I did was build a fintech startup that was focused around asset allocation called Nest Egg Wealth. And I did that for six years, eventually providing the, the software not just to consumers, but to financial advisors and you know, about 50 different firms who, um, who ended up using that uh, to serve their own customers and kind of growing that footprint. So I think, what is the best advice? The best advice is figure out what, is, what do you know that you know and what do you know that you do not know? You know, and everything kind of flows from that. The selection of your investment philosophy, the selection of your risk tolerance and your ability to put money to work and what goals you have, the financial planning around why you're, you're doing the investing and what you're trying to get out of it and how you're going to behave depending on the various ways that the investment will perform. And then a, a, a corollary is, is there someone who, what kind of investor are you? Do you need help? Do you want to delegate that to somebody who will make you feel more secure and maybe give you a smarter overlay? Or do you want to do it yourself because you're self-directed and you, know, you, th you think you can have control over it? So I think there's a whole set of bundled decisions that flows out of what it, who are you and what is it that you want to get done and just being super transparent about you know, where you're going. Got it. All right. Last question. What's your number one goal for the next 12 months? Ooh, so I'm, you know, I'm, a, I'm addicted to startups. And I think finance has some of the most interesting emerging technology there is. So I've just recently joined Consensus, which is a blockchain, one of the largest blockchain technology companies in the world. And we are focused on the tokenization of securities and the kind of connective tissue between the traditional financial world and the world of digital assets, crypto assets, um, and figuring out how, how the two connect through what platforms, through which software. So I'm trying to build out some really cool tools for people to get access to financial instruments that you know, historically they either didn't have enough money to do or was just too difficult to go through the onboarding process. And so it's a, it's a really interesting journey and opportunity because there's been a lot of pushback recently against cryptocurrencies at every level. And this is all about not cryptocurrencies, but how do you take equities and bonds and real estate and commodities, slice them up into securities, and then put them into software on new types of global infrastructure. So it's a big, it's a big challenge, but it's also, I think, one of the most fun things you can do in the industry today. Interesting. Maybe you could just tell us a little bit about that in one little way, which is, you know, 24 years ago, I started a coffee factory with my best friend Dale here in Bangkok, and we issued shares to ourselves. And, you know, we've issued shares to some others and they're, they're a piece of paper and, you know, they're also a digital entry somewhere. But I'm just curious for the next either today or in the next five years, when some young person comes along and goes, I'm going to set up a, a business, how is this blockchain or the securitization part of a business 
How do you see it changing? So the answer kind of sits in your description, which is that the, the legal and financial instrument of the shares of your startup is either on paper or in some Excel file, but is generally re removed from any functional market or trading or exchange. And so the, the current theme is, first off, you have in the, in, in the web, with the addition of public blockchains, you have a, a truth layer. So you have the dimension of time, recorded time added to all the data that we generate in the world, right? So you can think of it as digital objects become scarce as if they're physical objects, right? So in the real world, if I give you a cup of coffee, you have it and I don't. Uh, in the digital world, if I send you a picture of a cup of coffee, well, we all have a picture. But if that picture were rooted and tied as an object to a blockchain, then I could give it to you and then I don't have it anymore. So that attribute is, is very fundamental. And we're just beginning to figure out what the implications are. And one of those implications is taking the cap table of your business, taking all of the shares that people have and turning them into tokens, which are just little software objects that sit recorded at various addresses on the blockchain. And then people can have, you know, in their phone, they can have applications and wallets in which they can see and access those tokens, right? So if somebody had your coffee shop shares, they could see that in an app in their phone. And then you can do all the second order finance stuff. So if you wanted then to trade your coffee shop token for the laundromat token down the street, you could do that. Or if you wanted to create a portfolio of all coffee shops in Thailand and go along that and then mm -hmm. go short all coffee shops in I don't know, Singapore, you know, that, that could be theoretically an option. So by digitizing and turning into software, these equity interests and moving them off paper into smart contracts, you're opening up a really big opportunity space to explore. Wow. Well, I think that's a, a great explanation for people like myself that aren't at the cutting edge. <laughs> so that definitely helps. And hopefully that helps the listeners. Well, listeners, there you have it. Another story of loss to keep you winning. To find more stories like this, previous episodes and resources to help you reduce your risk, visit my worst investment ever. As we end, Lex, I want to thank you again for coming on the show. I know it's painful talking about our losers, but our listeners are learning to win as a result. And of course, you build a career out of that loss. So do you have any parting words for the audience? Thank you so much for having me. And if you want to keep up with some fintech news and developments, check out my Twitter, Lex Sokolin, or follow me on LinkedIn for my newsletter as well. Thanks so much. Fantastic. And I will put that into the show notes for the audience. And that's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and protect our well fellow risk takers. I'll see you on the upside.